Tom Bernard Show with Andy Brant Bernard and Mike Molina. And we'll be right back in a couple of seconds. Did the Oscars blow its big bet? We'll find out what that's all about next Tom Bernard Show. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant. Bradshaw and Brian. Due to the billions of marketing dollars spent by Walzer Automotive on Tom Bernard Podcast, you hopefully know that Walzer sells cars. What you might not know is that they also have two full-service collision repair centers in the Twin Cities. They're fully certified by all insurance carriers and can help you navigate all the paperwork if you ever have an accident. But wait, there's more. They've also been in the paintless dent repair business for nearly 30 years and can take those pesky dings out for just a fraction of what traditional body work costs. Broken windshield? Walzer Collision is a fleet of full-service mobile glass repair trucks as well. Walzer are pros at body and glass repair, but don't take my word for it. They have an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and a nearly perfect 4.8 Google rating. Check them out at walzercollision.com. What are the kinks up to? I don't know. It's a good question. I wonder what the Davies are up to. Oh, I just thought you were throwing that out there because something happened. Oh, no. I love the kinks. Yeah, me too. Love the kinks. Very, very good band. Do you guys, uh, you and Andy, Mike, do you care at all about the Oscars? Nope. No. No, I, I don't either. Was it always a, a women and just some guy thing? Because I think so. Maybe I might have cared about them when I was a little kid, maybe. But I, it, it's been years and years and years. But at the turn of the century, the Oscars began a steady decline in relevance. And the Academy knew it. Dramatic changes were instituted nearly 10 years after the most significant one. The award ceremony is in no better shape. Where did it go? And by the way, the Olympics are way down, too. The Olympic uh, Olympic viewing is way down this year. Where did it go wrong, and is it too late to get America to care about the Oscars again? Now, let me ask you this again, because, Andy, you're 31 years old, and Melina, you're 27 years old. Um, do, do people your age even watch television? I just don't know that they do. So for the Oscars to be way down and for the Olympics to be way down, since they shoot for that 18 to 49 demo, they're going to be way down because people 18 to 30 don't watch television. Well, I think Not in terms much. of the Olympics, another big problem is that it's 15 hours ahead of us, 
And nowadays, you know, right, you, you get right. alerts on your phone about who won gold or who crashed or whatever. So it's like, why am I going to watch? Yeah, there's, so there's no reason to watch because you already know what happened. Yeah, like sports is one of the few things, you know, you have to watch live, I would say. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. But, yeah, I think comparing TV viewing to what it used to be, because when I was a kid, obviously, the only thing to watch was television. That We didn't, you know, there were like four channels or three channels or four channels or whatever, five channels eventually. But now there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of channels that nobody watches because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other channels on on delivery systems like Netflix and Roku and you know Amazon and all the rest of them, and they all they all come together on Roku, which is our delivery system that we use. But there's just so much to watch. But I just don't think anybody under thirty watches much of anything. Do you have uh, Andy? I know you watch some stuff on Amazon, right? Yep. But you watch that on your laptop. Yes. So the fact that you pay your monthly, then you, you are you a Prime member? Yeah. Okay, so how do they keep track of viewership of, of places like Amazon? Uh, well, they can do that just, you know, people who buy it are watchers or people who download it or whatever. Yeah, but I mean, if it's free with Prime, how do they know you're watching it? They can, they know when people watch things. They do, even if it's on a laptop. Yep. All right. Do you do that as well, Melina? Uh, I I usually only will watch on Netflix or Hulu, even though I have Amazon Netflix Prime. Netflix or Hulu. Yeah. But you don't watch much Amazon Prime? No. Um, and do you watch it on, on a television or do you watch it on a, a computer? Uh, yeah, um, computer or television or even my phone. Even your phone, yeah. Yeah. But they can keep track of all that viewing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we will be casting our net wide. These were the words of Sid Gannis, then president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. It was 2009, on the heels of the biggest strategic shift in uh, Oscars history. Gannis announced to the world that the award ceremony would be expanding the nominee pool in the Best Picture category from five, the number it had settled on in 1944, after varying its size in its first 16 years to ten. It was a reactionary move, the first radical change to the Academy in decades, and it was driven by fear. Earlier that winter, the Oscars ceremony handed out its biggest prize to Slumdog Millionaire, choosing Danny Boyle's tale of an Indian game show contestant over the curious case of Benjamin Button, Frost, Nixon, The Reader, and Milk. Slumdog was the 16th highest-grossing film of that year, but earned nearly $400 million less than the impetus for the Academy's rule change, The Dark Knight. The absence of Christopher Nolan's Batman film and Pixar's Wall-E in favor of perfunctory Weinstein machine prestige fare like The Reader. What is The Reader? I don't even remember The Reader. What is that? I don't either. The Reader. What, what year was this? On 2009. 2000. Any, do you know what it is, Melina? The Reader? No. Nope. I don't really remember that. It forced Gannis in the Academy's hand. Things had to change. The future of movies was at stake. Gannis is a fascinating avatar for this shift. Given his role in Hollywood's rise to the center of American culture, he began his career working in marketing and spent time at Lucasfilm selling the world on the original Star Wars trilogy and Indiana Jones films. At Paramount, he helped make Top Gun and Fatal Attraction into hits aimed at adults that seemed enticing to teenagers. 
he developed Ghost and acquired the rights to Forrest Gump. He got his start on the set of Francis Ford Coppola's early films, gleaning wisdom from Joseph L. Mankiewicz, and later produced Adam Sandler comedies. Gannis is Hollywood incarnate, a studio baby who brought tip-top, big-top movie uh, populism to audiences for decades. Did you find out about The Reader? It's about a German lawyer who, when he was a teenager had an affair with an older woman and now he has to defend her as a because she was a guard at a Nazi concentration camp because I, I don't know I do not remember that movie at all doesn't sound fantastic That's but it was sad. it was it's german i mean it's like you know in english but right. i don't know if it really was that big in the U.S.? Yeah, maybe not. I don't not. think it was. Yeah, I don't even remember it. I don't either. By the time he arrived atop the Academy, he could no longer dictate taste. In the first year of his eventual four-year reign, Crash won Best Picture, notoriously besting Brokeback Mountain, both critically and financially superior. The $246 million cumulative domestic gross of 2005's five nominees is the lowest of all time. So... Each film made right around $50 million, and that was it? Boy, that's amazing. It was once an anomaly, uh, an important of things to come. After 15 sustained years of art house infiltration into the best picture conversation, the category had redefined itself. In 1998, the most successful movie to date, Titanic, was named Best Picture. More than 55 million people tuned in to watch James Cameron crow, I'm king of the world. Yeah, because he never had a big ego. James Cameron? That was uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Well, James Cameron wrote the movie. Well, yeah, but... Well, he produced the movie. Well, he thought he was king of the world. I guess so. king, Well, that's because that, that is what... Uh, what uh, Leonardo DiCaprio said when he was on the front of the ship. Yeah, that's like the, the, world, right? the thing that everyone remembers. Right, exactly. A decade later, Scott Rudin accepted the same prize for No Country for Old Men before an audience of 21 million people fewer than Cameron's. It was the lowest-rated Oscars telecast in history, 34 million people. The Oscars are rarely an objective adjudication of the best movies has to offer. Uh, for every stone-cold classic like No Country, there is a turkey like Crash. But what had been assured in decades past, specifically from the heady late 80s on, was that the film that took home the big prize was almost always a hit with audiences. Now we have, what are we, about three weeks away from the Oscars? Uh, Oscars, isn't it the first week in March or second week in March, something like that? It is loading March 4th. Yeah, so we're about three weeks away. Mm-hmm. Three weeks away from uh, from the Oscars. Uh, in 1988, Rain Man kicked off a run of Best Picture winners. It grossed over $75 million, including mega hits like Forrest Gump, Dances with Wolves, and Gladiator. The lesson was direct. Winners are seen. No Country was the first film to break this streak, grossing a hair under $75 million. Since the Academy's expansion, the number of films to cross that arbitrary red line has dipped to just two in eight uh, races. The King's Speech in 2010 made $135 million, and Argo in 2012 made $136 million. Gannis and companies plan to draw in the dark nights of the world backfired, and the period since the expansion box office figures from the winners have shrunk and ratings have declined, accumulating in last year's telecast, the lowest rated since no countries went a decade earlier. Yeah, the I'm looking at... Oh, my God, from 1997 to 2017, it's not good. 
It popped up a little bit in 2013, and I don't know why, but they're down. They were over 50 million people that watched the uh, the Oscars in 2000. Excuse me, in 1997, over 50 million. Just over 30 million watched it last year. Mm, and there's a lot more people now. Yeah, and there are a lot more people in America now. Anyway, it's just it's really really bad. Was 2013 that Oscars so white thing? Um, Maybe that's why it got a boost. That was like two years ago. No, oh, that was only like two years ago, 2015 or something uh, like that. 2016. 2016, yeah, two oh, years ago. Well, I don't know what happened in 2013 then. Actually, 2016 was one of the lowest rated of all time. Well, the good. lowest rated of all time was in 2007. That's why I think last year, huh? you know, they screwed up on purpose when they announced Best Picture. Yeah. you. I think, you know what, I think you're absolutely right about that. That anybody that thinks that that was an accident, I think you're 100% wrong. I think you're right in that they did that on purpose, didn't they? Yeah. Plus, you had Jimmy Kimmel with the tour group. Remember the guy who was just released out of prison? Jimmy Kimmel. Yes. Jimmy Kimmel. He's another one. He's the one that said conservatives are too stupid to do talk radio. Or talk television, excuse me. Whatever. What are those things called at night now? It's uh, talk shows? Yeah, I guess. uh, Is that what Tonight um, Show is? What the hell are those shows called? Nobody even watches them anymore. Yeah, really. I think the largest audience for one of those is Colbert. I think he draws like 1.6 million people a night, which is nothing. I mean, comparatively. Yeah, they're, I, they're called talk shows, I, guess I think. I guess they're talk shows. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, talk show hosts. The specific details of the Oscars ratings will not, as my colleague Brian Curtis likes to say, affect your life, but they do affect the movie business. The Academy Awards is routinely the most popular non-sports televised show in America year after year. It is not only a pageant that celebrates the gallantry of filmmaking and the mythic power of celebrity, it is also a kind of public trust decided in private. In no other artistic community is consensus so valued and later scrupulously organized, cited, and historized. Historicized, actually, is I think what they meant. Uh, the Oscars matter in a way that the uh, Grammys or Emmys never can. And that's because movies matter in a way that can unite 55 million people to see what happens to Titanic, in large part because nearly that many people bought a ticket to see Titanic. Did you guys see see Titanic in, in the movie theaters? Yeah. I mean, I think... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I what mean, I was like, movie? I couldn't have been more than 12, but... You were 13. Well, there you when, go. When it came out. Yeah, so I didn't really have a choice. What do you mean you didn't have a choice? We dragged you to it? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, when you're that young. Dra- you, go, we, you go where your parents go. Andy, get in here and watch this Well, I just right loved it because at the time I was in Catholic school and everybody went to go see it and not knowing that there was a nude scene in it because it was not yep. rated R. Oh, that's right. It was not rated R and she was naked on the couch. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's right. Kate Winslet was naked on the couch, wasn't she? (laughs) This has been more than true that the Academy likely bargained for. In its first year in action, Cameron returned to the Best Picture race, once again toting the most successful box office performer ever, this time Avatar. I never did see Avatar. Did you guys see it? I did not, no. No No, interest. Well, yeah, it just sounds bad. People like it because it's pretty, it's good CGI, but that's... Really, all I think. But aren't the blue blue people the the evil people? No, the blue people are. It's it's basically dances with wolves. It's oh, it the is. exact same thing. It's a white man comes and tries to take their land, and they fight. Oh, the white men try to take over the blue people. Yes, 
And then naturally, oh, one that. of the humans tried. They falls in love with one of the blue people, and you know. Well, we can't have that, et cetera, uh, et cetera. Species mixing. Yeah, that is kind of weird, but it's just typical James Cameron. He's another one. He loves to bash America, but he came from Canada to the United States, became a billionaire, and likes to bitch about it. Why? Yeah, if there's anyone well, who can complain about America, it's not a Hollywood famous person. Exactly. Because they've made so much money and have among the best lives of anyone on the entire planet or in history. They can't complain. It just looks so bad when you do something like that. Right. Complaining from your $50 million mansion. Complaining from your $754,000 couch. Exactly. Or your submarine. You don't be a hypocrite. In James Cameron's case. Oh, yeah, he went into the Mariana Trench or whatever. Yeah. yeah, he did. Best picture is an award that has been given to Mel Gibbs. I skipped a lot of this because it got really, uh, it got way over the top. Best picture is an award that's been given to Mel Gibson, Harvey Weinstein, and Woody Allen. <laughs> that's not a very good point, is it? That's not a good uh, threesome. Two guys who molested women and the other one's a Jew hater. That's really great. It also is a prize that has recognized a man for all seasons, The Godfather Part Two, and Rebecca. There is glory and shame in every awards season. Well, they're absolutely right about that. We will be back. Tom Bernard Show. I'm Brad Huckle, president of North American Banking Company. Ask one of our bankers what they love about business banking. They always say the relationship with a client. Case in point, True North Oral Surgery and Implants is a longtime customer with a growing practice. Their banker, Julie Marshall, knows the ins and outs of what they do. So when they need working capital, an equipment loan, or funds for expansion, they call Julie. Are you looking for a banker you can count on? Give us a call. This is Tom. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Just like all of you, I had been hearing about my pillow and was skeptical that it was as great as everyone says. Well, I received my first my pillow and I love it. It's very comfortable, stays in that same exact position all night. Fantastic. Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow, has a very special offer for Tom Bernard Show listeners. My pillow is offering more than 50% off his four pack special which includes two premium my pillows and two go anywhere pillows. If you're looking for a great night's sleep, now is the perfect time to get your first my pillow. If you already know how great the my pillow is, why not give them to everyone you know? Call 800-516-5146, use promo code TOM or go to mypillow.com. But make sure you use promo code TOM. Call 800-516-5146 and use promo code TOM. That's 800-516-5146, promo code TOM. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side, break on through. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Bernard show. Mike Molina, Andy, the women, of course, bailed. What a shot. Have a great guest coming up, though, in about 15 minutes. Uh, after nearly 40 years in the tabletop industry, the longtime publisher of the popular Settlers of Catan, is that what it's called? Yes, I do you, think. Do you know Settlers of Catan? I know it was very popular like five years ago, but I never played it. Oh, you never played it? Molina? Nope. Never played it. You never played it either? No. I never even heard of it. Uh, the longtime publisher of the popular Settlers of Catan franchise is closing its doors. Mayfair Games has sold its remaining games catalog to Asmodee North American. 
uh, a massive games publisher and distributor, the company announced. As of today, the management team at Mayfair Games Incorporated announces we will wind down game publishing. The company said in a statement, after 36 years, this was not an easy decision or one we took lightly, but it was necessary. Once we had come to this conclusion, we knew we had to find a good home for our games, which is when we reached out to Asmodi. In 2015, Mayfair Games refreshed Settlers of Catan with a new 5th edition release simply called Catan. The following year, it sold the North American license for the franchise to Asmodi North America. Today's announcement indicates that it will add the entire product line of Mayfair Games. So, these are board games? Yep. Well, does anybody play board games any longer? People claim to, but I don't, I've never really seen it happen. I mean, isn't that what PS4 is all about, does playing games? What? Um, oh, no. Well, those aren't board games. Well, no, I, I'm just saying. That, that's, isn't that where everybody plays their games now is on, on their computer? Much more popular, yeah. But for some reason, board games, there's like a... I think it's a hipster thing. Oh, it's a hipster thing? Yeah. They all say how much they love board games so much, oh, and then, but okay. then they never really play them. Hence, one of the most popular board games of the past 30 years going under. It was going under, yeah, exactly. Um, so people... I mean, can you play games like Monopoly on your computer? Yep. Yeah, see, so why would anybody buy a board game? Because, I guess I to know. play with Grandpa or something. It's I, like, I guess. Well, it's like people who buy books because they like the feel of books or whatever. Yeah, I buy books. I understand that. I have. Uh, I mean, we used to play board games when you were a kid. Yep. But that was, you know, long before the advent of things like uh, Nintendo and all the rest. Well, how, when did, how old were you when Nintendo hit the... I had just been born. So you were just born. Yeah, Nintendo's okay. from the NES, I believe, came out in 1986. So it was literally when you were born. Yes. Uh, let's see. Um, what the hell? There it is. October 18th, 1985. So almost oh, so exactly it, one year before I was born. A year before you were born. Exactly. Yep. Although we didn't really use... Well, I mean, we used it a bit. Mom played a lot of Dr. Mario, I remember. Yeah, she loved Dr. Mario. There it is. Super Mario Bros. We had yep. that, of course, because everyone did. Yes. Well, That we, and Duck uh, Hunter. I remember. And yep. Duck Hunter, yeah. Uh, when I started dating your mother in 1981, yeah, 1981, we started dating, and one of the first things she did is she asked me, have you ever played Ms. Pac-Man? Mm-hmm. But, arcade games were cool back then. Yeah, so you had to go to an arcade to do it, so I had never done it. So we went to an arcade to play Ms. Pac-Man, and that was in 1981. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. And Dave & Buster's, do they still do, are they still arcade? Uh, yes, but arcades are very different now, because you can play basically any game on any computer. Uh, so it's not like you have to go to the arcade to get the, you know, best graphics right. and everything anymore. Right. So. What they do now is games where you require, like, a lot of space to play. Like, there's one I know uh, that they had at Gameworks where it was... It basically was the size of probably this room here. Really? uh, With, like, benches and everything. And it had about, I think, eight different terminals. And what would happen is it would automatically uh, play horse races. And then anyone who wanted to could come in and register their own horse and oh, then when the yeah. next race was coming up they could enter their horse in that race and so forth and that's not really something you can do on your computer so no, I could that's why that. that kind of thing exists so that that's what dave and busters does then they a have lot those of, kind of games like that. yeah and like light gun games um 
those aren't really popular anymore uh, at home because they're just really hard to make with a LCD screen. Right. So they have light gun games. They have that kind of thing. They have like the racing games where you go into the thing and there's a real steering wheel and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's basically just like for things that if you wanted to do it at home, it would cost a lot of money to do. Well, now the big... Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, that's all right. Oh, the big craze now is this uh, game called HQ Trivia. Like people at work... What's that? Uh, it's just a trivia game that you can play with groups or friends or whatever, and you compete against people all across the country or the world. Oh, and, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, like trivia, and uh, I guess just uh, it, it's played a lot at work or amongst friends. But anyways, I guess people like are so drawn to it that the world stops, and I guess some people at work, you know, there's no productivity because everybody's playing these trivia games, and we're talking like, you know, upwards of 30 <laughs> people. Yeah. It, it's crazy. It's kind of like uh, reminiscent of, um, oh, what is it? Uh, who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I did see on television, they still have things like the strength games, like hitting a pallet with a sledgehammer to see how far you can. <laughs> yeah, kind of, stuff like that kind up. of still exists. Yeah, that I know there's. Exist. I know there's one they had at GameWorks where it was a punching bag that you had to see how much you could punch it in 30 seconds or whatever. Well, this one, I saw one of those on the news, actually. And I was hanging, the punching bag was attached to a, like a hard pole. And you hit the punching bag as hard as you could. And it would register how hard you actually hit it. So it wasn't hanging there loosely. It was attached to, you know, like a standard, or, or like a standard, right? And this guy, the reason it was on the news is a guy tried to, set the all-time record and wound up and swung so hard he missed the bag and punched the game next to him mm. and it looked like he broke his entire arm I'll tell you that. yeah part of part it of did not look good part of knowing how to punch is knowing how to hit uh, yeah there's no question you it, yeah, if you have poor accuracy then it's not really going to help you any and people don't understand if you turn your your wrist at all if you, you're going to punch somebody or something that hard you're going to break your hand so if you don't know how to punch something, I wouldn't do that. This guy missed it, and I'm t- I was like, I think it was one of those driving games you were talking about with the steering wheels. He missed the bag and punched that driving game really hard, and I think he broke his arm. It's like, my God. Very quickly, back to the Asmodee uh, story. Asmodee simultaneously snatched up Lookout Games, makers of Uwe Rosenberg's classic Agricola. Do you know what that is? No. Never even heard of Agricola. Agricola? A-G-R-I-C-O-L-A. Agricola, yeah. Oh, it's a board game. As well as his more recent title, Caverna. In recent years, Asmodee has been aggressive with its acquisitions. Its stable now includes Fantasy Flight Games, Days of Wonder, F2Z Entertainment, which continue to publish under their own names. That makes the company the publisher of dozens of the most highly regarded franchises in the tabletop industry, including Seven Wonders, Dead of Winter, Dixit Splendor, Star Wars, the X-Wing Miniatures Game, Pandemic, and Ticket to Ride. Internationally, Asmodee distributes Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, and Yu-Gi-Oh! Is it Yu-Gi-Oh? Yes. In European countries. Um, so some people actually still do play these, but but it sounds like Asmodee might be one of two companies left in the world that makes them. Yeah, there, it's not a big enough market to like enter, that's for sure. Now, what's the one game I was just trying to think of that everybody everybody plays? I, I know that Pokemon thing that, mm-hmm, that was played on big. phones mostly. 
Uh, well, there that was Pokemon Go. Well, that was Pikachu. Yeah. Pokemon Go. What's Pikachu? That's one of the Pokemon. It's like oh, their it's mascot, basically. So Pokemon Go was the one that I would constantly see people on Victory Memorial Drive in yep. Minneapolis looking for. What were they looking for? They were looking for Pokemon. They were looking for Pokemon. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, yeah, it's now. weird how everyone was into that, and then all of a sudden they all just stopped. Oh, so it's it's done now. It's not done, but it's it, it has to be maybe a tenth as popular as it was yeah. at its peak. Well, it's a, yeah, I don't see them, I don't see people wandering around the parks, no. uh, the park systems and all that stuff doing it anymore. So why would were there were there prizes? Is that what drew, were there like monetary prizes or something? No, it was just well, it was something to do, and uh, it was an excuse to just like get out of the house, I guess. <laughs> why would anyone do that? <laughs> I don't know. Because they it sounds like a terrible know. time. Doesn't sound like it was fun at all. Well, plus well, they, you do do a lot of walking. Yeah, I guess that's one benefit to that thing. But I just remember I was uh, yeah. visiting. I was out in New York and I was in Central Park and it was crazy because uh, I think these Pokemon were by monuments or like historical places, and it would just be right, like groups right. and groups of people, like just not looking yeah, up I or know. paying attention. They'd be looking at their phone. No, you're absolutely right. Because I'm, I'm telling you, it was it two years ago. Then it was so big. Two or maybe even I think it was three. three. Two or three. Huh? Was it three years ago already? Because yeah. I would drive down Victory Memorial Drive in North Minneapolis, and the the, the park was packed with people, oh, no. and every one of them was looking at their phone. It wasn't even two years ago. It was July 2016. Oh. Is that was recent? Really? Wow. Is that recent? feels a lot less recent. Yeah. Well, if you're going to get into it, now's the time, because there aren't giant swarms of people everywhere now. Oh, so they still do it, but nobody cares. Yeah, it's not it's not a fad anymore. Okay, I have a question for you. So, how did the Pokemon people make any money from this? Uh, you, I know you can buy things like um, I think you need Pokeballs to catch Pokemon. Um, Pokeballs. Yes. Okay. And I believe you get certain amount per day, and you can buy more if you run out. I think. So, oh, so they made money on them. They made a lot of money. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what. I I'd, wish I would have invested in Nintendo yeah. stock before that because it just it went up by, I think, Yeah, they made a five lot times. of money. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But just microtransactions. Because the thing about microtransactions is if you have a game that costs $60 uh, and you sell it to a million people, that's a lot of money. But yeah, That's a lot of money. But with microtransactions, there are, there are people out there who will spend five $600 on um, microtransactions that they just don't have the option for with normal-priced games. So they rely on these uh, these cash cows to play the game and put hundreds of dollars in there per month. And I, that's where all the money comes from. I just saw on TV today, it was one, I don't know, one of these clip, clip shows. I don't, I don't know what the name of the show was. I just happened to be on. And this kid who didn't look to be more than maybe four years old was playing with his his mother's phone. You know, he just kind of looked like he was punching buttons and all that stuff. Never a good idea. Never a good idea. So the dad goes over and grabs the phone, and the kid had ordered like nine hundred dollars worth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't know. Are you dumb he ordered. enough to give your kid a phone that has <laughs> like you know that you can just push a button and order something? Then exactly. What do you think is uh, going to happen? Seriously, the kid was ordering nine. I can't remember what it was. It was <laughs> it was. Toys or food or, or something. Well, yeah, they'll literally just push. hundred bucks. They'll just push whatever button is the biggest and shiniest, and usually that's the buy button. Yep. Because, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. 
I think that's hilarious. I think it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious that <laughs> the dad goes, "What the hell are you doing, <laughs> giving the kid the phone?" He just ordered yeah. nine hundred dollars. Yeah, that that's was a very uh, bad parenting move. Oh God, it's yeah, it was. There's no doubt about it. The elitist of clubs. Uh, welcome to third member on Monday, American figure skater Mirai Nagusu, or Nagasu, became the third woman to ever land a triple axel at the Olympics. This is what you guys were talking about earlier. Apparently. Uh, it came as part of an effort that saw the U.S. women secure a team bronze and it places her alongside Midoro Ito, who landed the jump in 1992, and Mao Asada who managed the feat in 2010 and 2014. Both were skating for Japan. It's not the first time Nagasu has skated for America, but the 24-year-old's past attempts haven't been so headline-grabbing. She ended up fourth in Vancouver in 2010, missed out on Sochi in 2014. The Washington Post reports her dream of landing the jump was what brought her back to the ice after that Sochi snub. ESPN echoes that series of events and reports it took Naga, uh, Nagasu two years to master the jump. So this is, now again, you guys were talking about the triple axle. What's the difference between the triple lutz and the triple axle again? It's something that doesn't matter unless you're an ice skater. Well, she did it, which is pretty damn impressive. But I, I guarantee you one thing, if the, if the Washington Post writes about it, it can't be about a white person. Have you ever noticed that? Honest to God, they're just unbelievable. Washington Post is having problems right now. Yeah, they are. Good, because the guy who owns Amazon owns it, so he needs to take one in the shorts. Well, we do have our guest on the line, so I guess when we come back, uh, we'll get to Pamela. We will take, we'll be right back in just a couple of seconds, and we will get to Pamela right up to this Tom Bernard show. This is Tom, and I've been telling you how easy it has been for me to lose weight on the Nutramost weight loss plan. My goal has been to lose 92.5 pounds. Well... I've started up another round at the new Nutramost Plymouth location, and I can't wait to shed those extra unwanted pounds. Nutramost is unlike any other weight loss program. It's just so easy, and they guarantee that you will lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. There's no exercise, shots, drugs, prepackaged food, and I'm never hungry. The team at Nutramost in Plymouth will support you every step of the way on your wellness and weight loss journey. Then, after you hit your goal, Nutramost in Plymouth is there for you with the Nutramost Forever Plan an all-inclusive wellness program that improves and promotes healthy living and choices. Nutramost has helped me change my life, and I know they can help you too. Nutramost Plymouth, located just off Highway 55 and 494. Call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. Tom Bernard here. If you're ready to sell your home, you've probably heard that you should wait until spring. But why wait for temperatures to rise when the market is hot right now? Not selling in winter is a total myth. Truth is, buyers are hungry. And while other sellers and real estate agents hibernate, the Chris Lindahl team is selling homes like hotcakes. Chris has done a great job. We have our house on the market with Chris right now, as a matter of fact. And the video he did is amazing. The Chris Lindahl team is America's number one REMAX results team for a reason. They play to win. And they've got the skilled players to sell your home fast. In fact, they sell a home on average every nine hours for over the MLS average. Don't wait until spring to sell your home. Call the Chris Lindahl team at 763-401-SOLD. That's 763-401-SOLD. The first two callers will get a free staging package. This is a huge value, and it's only going to the first two Tom Bernard Show callers from this ad. That's 763-401-SOLD. Call now, get the free staging package, and grab the opportunity before winter is over.
ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if that's much of a Valentine's Day song there, Molina. <laughs> Stop dragging my heart around. Although I suppose it kind of fits with the story. Investigation Discovery tells a shocking true story of love affair with a twist. In the new docu- documentary special, he lied about everything. Pamela Deutsch, executive producer of the documentary. Pamela, how are you? I'm well, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Marvelous. You know, this is not exactly your your normal love story for Valentine's Day. That is right. But, you know, it, it's interesting as, as everyone sort of readies their programming for Valentine's Week, we are uh, no exception, but because, you know, ID is who we are, we have a, a story with a real uh, interesting twist to it. Let's just put it that way. Pamela, I love Investigation Discovery. It's a great channel. It is great, great. stuff. It's great Wonderful. stuff. This Valentine's Day, Investigation Discovery presents a love story gone wrong with He Lied About Everything, the astonishing true tale of the love affair between award-winning investigative news producer Benita Alexander and the brilliant, world-renowned surgeon Paolo Macchiarini, uh, which start was that close? Macchiarini? That was very good. Macchiarini. Okay, very it is Macchiarini. Good. I'm, I'm proud of myself now. What started as a picture-perfect dream relationship between two people at the height of their successful careers developed into a nightmare filled with lies, deceit, and destruction surrounding Paolo's business and personal life. Uh, Why does this happen? At least it seems to me this happens a lot. Why do people try to lie their way through, through relationships? I don't understand that. You know, it's shocking, and, and I would say particularly in this day and age where everything we do sort of leaves a digital footprint and it's just so much easier to sort of get information about people, um, it's, it's kind of astonishing. And I think that this guy took it to new heights, and, and truly once, you know, once Benita sort of started to get an inkling that something was up, it was just the floodgates opened and there was truly nothing honest about this relationship. And, uh, you know, it literally was sort of at the, I would say two months before the wedding date for the two of them. Uh And um, at this point, uh, Benita, you know, was, was looking forward to traveling to Italy and the wedding guest list, you know, was full of dignitaries. Everything from Barack Obama and Bill Clinton what? to Elton John and John Legend. And the the cherry on the top was that Pope Francis was to perform the nuptials. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, she believed all so, this? Yeah. Oh. I mean, if you're going to lie, go big, I think, is, is what Paolo Macarini he, what his what his thought was on the matter. So she thought that the president of the United States was going. What year was this? This was was about three years ago, I believe. Oh, so and what? So, the, yeah, president of the United States was yeah, going to be there. The at Pope. the time, she, the reason she sort of figured out that something was up was, you know, she was two months away from her wedding, and she read somewhere that Pope Francis was meant to be in South America at that ah. time. So that was sort of the first red flag. Well, why did she ever believe that the Pope has... First of all, I have, to, I have to ask you this, Pamela. Has a Pope ever performed a wedding in history? Well, it's, strangely enough, there was a story about two weeks ago about him performing a wedding on a, an air flight, but we didn't tell Benita. Um, 
<laughs> well, okay. <laughs> there is some precedent, but really? I would say actually both Benita and Paolo were divorcees. So it, it does seem happen. very unlikely given that. Um, what later Benita found out was that Paolo wasn't actually divorced at all. Oh. He was uh, still married. So that presented even more of a problem. <laughs> so they were, now they met where? Where did, where did they, well, in, they what, in Pasadena? No, they were actually, she was a, a news producer in New York, and she oh, was doing actually a, a film about him and his work. And Paolo was doing really, really innovative um, surgeries in regenerative medicine. He was actually um, creating artificial tracheas in the lab and um, doing transplants. And they met while she was sort of, covering the story. I actually saw the original um, hour that she did. And I got to say, you kind of get it. This is this, you know, very handsome sort of dashing surgeon who comes Mm -hmm. in and he's, you know, taking on these cases where people generally have no other options. And, um, you know, he's sort of coming in and saving the day. So, um, you know, I, I do kind of get it. Um, but <laughs> I think, you know, love is blind and, uh, he just happened to meet her when she was going through a very vulnerable time in her life. She ha- she was divorced, but her, um, ex-husband, the father of her daughter was dying of cancer. Oh. And so she was at a real low point and, and Paolo really kind of came in and became sort of this surrogate father to the daughter was just really warm and wonderful with her. So I think that, you know, it's, it's sort of like the old wildlife documentaries we used to run on discovery channel, you know, where the Nile crocodile waits for the, the baby gazelle lunges at him, <laughs> finds the Right. Right. <laughs> so Pamela, was he actually doing that? You talked about the, 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 the tracheas and all, he was actually, doing that and was very successful at doing this trachea replacement? Well, <laughs> oh, that's God, not even a, that. another interesting part of the story. When, when, when Benita sort of sets out to kind of figure out who, what this guy was all about, she decides to try to track him down. And he is basically working all over the world. He's working in Russia. He's doing a lot of work in Sweden mm-hmm. with the, uh, the Karolinska Institute, which are, sure. these are the people sure. that actually give out the Nobel Prize. And, um, you know, also in, in Italy and in Spain. And so she sets out to sort of, you know, track him down. And what she discovers is pretty shocking. Um, and he is now sort of under investigation, particularly with the Swedes, um, for potential criminal activity. He, um, as it seems, did not do sort of, uh, you know, act- testing on animals before he um, did these surgeries on people. So he was essentially, what it looks like is that he was kind of doing a Dr. Frankenstein um, and experimenting on humans. So he actually so, did do the replacements, but he wasn't supposed to be doing them yet? Well, he had, you know, he, he's done at least one surgery in the U.S. Oh. Um, most of his surgeries have been international. But I will say this, most of these patients, um, you know, really had no other recourse and probably would have died anyway. Mm, okay. But that's not the case with all of them. So it's very much sort of still under investigation. 
Why do you think it is, Pamela, that some people, and there are, are people of uh, you know varying degrees, that just cannot tell the truth about anything? Even if they're successful, they can't tell the truth about that. They have to embellish upon that. I, I you know, I, it's hard. That's a, that's a, that's the question I think that makes this all so fascinating. It just makes no sense. He, on his own, he is a certified doctor. Right. You know, he. A, a skilled surgeon, but why he took it all to these these varying levels, and the 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 you know the things that he would lie about, the minutia, you know, once she started started catching him um, in lies, you know, he told her at one point he gave her a ring and and told her that he was actually one of a few a list of a few a short list of elite doctors around the world that were you know practicing on some of the world leaders, and he was actually. Uh, there was a tracking device in the ring and, you know, just crazy stuff. So it, it just makes no sense that someone that smart and successful would resort to this. That it, it just must be pathological. Well, it has to be because you do see it all. It, even if people are very, very good at something, quite successful at it, they have to embellish upon it and make it even better than it actually is. And I just don't, I don't understand that. You've achieved these wonderful things, but in your brain, in your mind, that's still not enough. You're still not a good enough person. So is it just your own view of yourself that I'm still not I'm still nothing in my own eyes. Is that what it is? No, that could be it. It could be a, a bit of narcissism. Yeah. It, it's, you know... It's hard to tell without, you know, but it certainly seems to be the case. He, you know, it, it just, it seems to be pathological. And he, you know, just, there's, there's really nothing honest about his life. So basically, <laughs> and, you know, and we're not going to give away the story, obviously, because people want to watch investigate. I want to watch it on Investigation Good. Discovery and find out. <laughs> The whole, but so she finds out the Pope's not even going to be uh, around. He's not going to be in Rome when he's supposed to be, and then she finds out. I'm sure that uh, Barack and Michelle might have uh, dinner plans with somebody else. And I, I mean, to go to those lengths to to lie at that level, that's got to be like yeah. world record setting. It has to be. Yeah, true. And and he had convinced her that he would take care of all of the wedding planning details, which is sort of unusual in itself. Right. She had gone out, and, and he, he sort of insisted that she have, like, three different dresses. So she spent a good amount of her own money buying the dresses. She spent something outrageous, like $40,000 on the um, invitations, which were made out of, you know, like leather or something. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> It's, um, you know, so in the end, you know, she kind of was tracking all of the places that they were supposed to be. They were renting out a castle and she, you know, they had never heard of him. Um, so I oh. guess my biggest question is what if she had not called off the wedding, what would have happened when, you know, the 350 guests show up and descend on this small town in Italy and, you know, what what, is it, what would have happened had it gone that far? It's kind of crazy. Where did you know? Doesn't give anything away. I wouldn't think. Where where in Italy was the wedding supposed to take? By, down by Rome, I assume. This was um, somewhere. I I believe it was a sort of a private residence, a papal residence somewhere. Um, not entirely sure, but it, not inconceivable that it could have been there. It was a rentable facility, but, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't, wasn't poolside yeah, up know. at Villa d'Este or something up in northern Italy. I, I, it just, 
People like that fascinate me. I've known people, and Pamela, you've probably known people in your life that cannot just tell the straight-ahead truth. They always have to embellish on everything. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing You know, it takes, a, it takes a lot of skill. It takes. I, I, what I can't imagine is how someone can stand in front of you with a straight face yeah. and, and lie like that. And, and why? But, you know, we, there, we certainly have no shortage of those types of stories um, on our network. And... Uh, you know, you definitely, you, you see it. And, and it's also, you know, you think, oh, I would never fall for that. But you, you do really, it's a, you know, people do fall for it all the time for different reasons. Yeah. And, and I think mo- mostly because you just can't imagine someone would lie about that kind of a thing. And, it, you yeah. know, what's the point? And as you That's said, crazy. her ex-husband was dying and there was a, a child involved and she was yeah. very vulnerable at that time. I can't remember the movie, but there was a movie and I think it was... Uh, I think it was Jim Belushi was in the movie it, uh, about last night or it was something like that. And he was working mm-hmm. out with his friends, you know, just going to the gym or whatever. And they went to a bar after working out and there was a very attractive young woman there. And he, Jim Belushi started talking to her and he still got some of his gear on. So uh, she says, well, what do you do? And he said, well, do you know anything about boxing? And she goes, no, I'm afraid I don't. And he goes, I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> you know, it's the same deal. Yeah. It's like, well, she doesn't exactly. know if I am or not. So I'm, for tonight, I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. I will be watching. It is Wednesday, February 14th, this Wednesday, Valentine's Day, starting at 7 o'clock Central Time, 8 o'clock Eastern, of course. Investigation Discovery tells the shocking true story of a love affair with a twist in a new documentary special. He lied about everything. Pamela Deutsch, wonderful, the executive producer of the documentary. I cannot wait to see it. Great, great story. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Pamela. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Pamela Deutsch, ladies and gentlemen. You guys, you guys have known people like that, haven't you? They cannot oh, yeah. possibly just tell you the flat-out uh-huh. truth. they got to embellish. they got to oh, make yeah. stuff up. What is that? I really couldn't tell you. I'd never, I, I just don't really lie. I've yeah. never seen the point in it. Yeah, why bother? Yeah, right? I mean, the truth is yeah. going to come out. Yeah, they're going to find out eventually that you're flat-out <laughs> lying. And it's like... What are you doing? It's not, nothing you've told me is true, and it's going to come out. I, I, I guess they just think it's never, ever going to come out. Yeah, they think that they won't get caught on like everyone else. I guess. That must be what it is. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tom Bernard Show.